arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Did you see the sunrise? Yeah, that was, that was, I, I always liked that one. I always liked that one. Bo Svensson was in that. He played the heavy in there And Did You See the Sunrise. His buddy gets blown up in the car. He, it was meant for Tom, Magnum, to be blown up. And instead, his Navy buddy goes to start the car and gets blown up. And it flashes back to Bo Svensson, who had them all as prisoners in uh, Vietnam and who had killed one of them, shot him in the femoral artery when they were hanging in cages. The thing that happened in that episode in Did You See the Sunrise that was so different in television was at the end of it, Bo Svensson is standing there and Tom knows he's killed uh, his friend. Tom knows he shot him and killed another one of the team in Vietnam. And Bo Svensson is under the protection of being a Russian citizen and, and uh, in the legation, and he has uh, that kind of protection, is about to leave the island. And he's standing there and he says to, uh, to Magnum, uh, you know, you can't kill me, you can't shoot me, I'm unarmed. It's not your style. It's not the American way. And he says, Dasvidanya, and turns and starts to walk away, and we're on Tom. And Tom says, you know, Ivan. And he turns back and says, yes. He says, did you see the sunrise this morning? And Magnum turns and boom, fires right into camera. End of episode. Did You See the Sunrise is the penultimate Magnum P.I. episode. This episode has the motive not only of revenge, but the institution of justice. The Jones story, Anthony's story, and the Magnum episode coincide in those respects. I did not write Anthony's story from the template of Did You See the Sunrise. The conclusion of Anthony's story begins with Jones heading for Flanagan Field for Anthony's handkerchief and more gunfire. Coco's Uncle Dulio appears on a motorcycle. With Jones on the motorcycle and under fire, Dulio heads through the woods. Jones is now targeted, according to Dulio. Here is episode four of Anthony's story, The Conclusion, by Robert P. Fitton. Anthony's story by R.P. Fitton. Chapter 14, Observation Point. Prince William, New Hampshire. Jones gripped the stick shift and shifted the jeep up Observation Point's winding road. He swung wide and into the empty parking lot. Numb by the wind and his thoughts, he leaped onto the asphalt, leaving the jeep door open. He slid his hands inside his windbreaker and stepped onto the ramp that led to the white dome building. Cooler wind chugged up the Prince William plane, smattered with city lights toward the river and the crosstown bridge. Above, the stars shone brightly away from the city. 
His head buzzed, even though he had had nothing to drink. So many times he had climbed this ramp with Coco to the deck, overlooking the Prince William skyline across the river. And now Coco was dead. Jones covered his eyes and cried when he reached the retaining wall. In some way, Coco's death had a deeper hurt than when his father was found dead in his pickup truck. Coco had come out to Indiana in order to recruit Jones to coach at Hamilton College. It was Coco who had realized his dad may have been murdered, and it was Coco who stuck by Jones to find his father's killer. No, he called into the night air. You can't be dead, Coco. He began to pace along the walkway and tried to construct a theory for Coco to be alive. There was no body, Jones, he shouted. Nobody in that car, nothing along the shore. With his back to the city, Jones slowly slid down the white retaining wall and lingered between sleep and unfathomable hurt. Finally, he drifted off. Occasionally, errant cars along the highway below or the sound of a motorcycle awoke him, but just as quickly he fell back asleep. A few raindrops cooled his face, jarring him around 4.30. He retreated to the Jeep, got inside the open door, and headed for the all-night Big Mama's Donuts on Marigold Ave. It was only when he picked up a clump of napkins that he decided when the day broke he'd drive up to Flanagan Field and retrieve Anthony Stefani's handkerchief. Clouds hung in clumps, allowing the sunlight to penetrate the green tree branches. Jones, facing the shack, skidded to a stop in the dirt. Through the breaks in the cloud bank, the morning sun covered his tired face. He imagined the blue plane taking off quickly over the trees as it circled toward Fletcher Hill on Hamilton Fletcher's 70th birthday. Had Lou Marlowe lost consciousness by then? Jones thought so. Or maybe he died in the plane. Kostecki's involvement cost him his life. Even Olson had disappeared, all under the auspices of Mr. Sean Grogan, who now controlled Lou Marlowe's financial empire. Jones stepped inside the musty shack. Warren Carruthers, another casualty, had sat drinking his Jim Beam just two days ago. The Jim Beam bottle sat on the wooden corner bench, but as Jones panned the room, he did not see Anthony Stefani's tattered red handkerchief. The handkerchief had been on the bench when Carruthers was shot to death outside. Damn. He approached the open window frame and placed both hands against the weathered frame. On this summer morning, the sun quietly filtered through the birch, oak, and maple leaves, producing a shimmering effect on the wood-slatted wall. A new black Dodge Charger spun in the dirt across the small field. Then several bullets pierced the barnboard wood, and Jones dived to the floor. From the moldy rug, he heard a motorcycle engine rev further away. More gunfire punctuated the morning stillness thought about Neuhauser, killed in the woods. Through the slats, he spotted the huge Uncle Dulio in a black leather jacket as he looped around the grass on a powerful orange and black Harley. One of the men in the charger fired at Dulio. Still swerving as if he were on a horse, Dulio pumped the rifle at the charger. The tires on the far side popped and the car spun out of control at high speed and disappeared over the ledge into the trees. There were several crashes as Dulio whipped the bike toward the shack, spraying the walls with dirt and rocks. Get on, Jonesy, he said in a deeper voice than Coco's citified voice. 
You ain't safe. Jones leaped on the back of the motorcycle and held the seat's vinyl edge. Not just here, you ain't safe, period, said Dulio as he shot across the field at high speed. They want you dead. Oh, hold on. Why me? Keep your head low, yelled Dulio as the bike slowed and descended under the spreading trees and onto a path. Now they want us all dead. It's not just Grogan, is it? Dulio never answered, and the bike fishtailed in the dirt on the higher hill. Jones was stunned at how Dulio deftly maneuvered over the rocks on similar hills to the east. Fifteen minutes later, they emerged in a dirt parking lot in rural Newtown. Dulio slowed near the highway. His wind-blown dark hair and his blue eyes gave him a surreal appearance. Jones wiped his own eyes with his sleeve. Is Coco alive? I doubt it. Listen, Jonesy, they may grab your Jeep. The Jeep can be replaced. We need to get the hell out of here right now. I don't trust nobody. We stay around here with dead meat. Where to? Boston? Fiore? Dulio shook his head as he straddled the bike. Who's after us? The Chachette. They're an international gang. They immigrated from Vietnam. One of them was driving that Charger. That gang. Is that why Mulvaney is everywhere at once? questioned Jones. Dulio looked both ways down the highway. Don't know. They killed the other FBI guy, Donovan. Dulio turned three quarters around. How do you know about him? Coco. Donovan was killed in Rhode Island. Yeah, they murdered him and they cut him up. Jones took a few seconds to absorb that image. What the hell do we do now? We leave. No use in credit cards and I got ten grand on me. Canada? Dulio peered over his shoulder and shook his head. Jonesy, there's more going on here than I can say right now. Just hold on. I need to find out about Coco and some other things. We'll go right in their backyard, exactly where they ain't expecting us to go. New York. By mid-morning, Dulio brought the motorcycle west on a state road instead of going through Boston. Before noon, he veered southwest across Massachusetts. In a small factory town, he banked into a parking lot near several restaurants. Why are we off the interstate? asked Jones as they moved toward a silver diner. There was an SUV, uh, not the Boston, Jonesy. They followed us around 495. Jones started toward the fast food restaurant. Dulio pointed to the side of the building. Surveillance camera. We eat inside the diner. Think it was them? asked Jones as they approached the diner. I ain't taking the chance. We'll take the old roads, cross the Berkshires into New York State. Look, Jonesy, this is very dangerous. You can catch a bus to Indiana, if no questions asked. There's no body in that vet. Maybe Coco's in New York. Dulio paused at the door. Yeah, you can talk yourself into anything. You don't think I want Coco to be alive? I gotta face facts. Well, I'm not ready to accept that. I'm going with you. Got your career, Jonesy. This could get real messy. Why, who else is involved? Maybe the FBI. What? Not the whole FBI, said Dulio. Coco thought Malvaney was crooked. Dulio opened the door to the loud conversation and clanging plates. Grogan must have bought him off, or maybe he gets a cut. Well, that's all unproven. We don't know that. Where's Grogan now? asked Jones as they sat on the chrome seats at the counter. Probably New York. Fiori got us that address of Marlowe's New York office. Run by Grogan. The waitress put down two menus and both men requested coffee. Well, how does that relate to the Chechet gang, Dulio? 
asked Jones as he quickly picked a breakfast special. The large dulio enveloped his seat. Anthony knew of that connection. He started getting his stuff out of New York, probably from the Far East. He made money hand over fist. Nobody knows how that drug connection really worked. It stumped the FBI. And he was protected because nobody had any idea you could fly out of Flanagan Field, said Jones. Coco must have known Anthony was dead. Nah, he didn't know. But Jonesy, it's been five years. Anthony's fiance is married to somebody else. Unless the cops have Anthony's handkerchief, said Jones. Coco may have grabbed it. Dulio shook his head. Could be anywhere. Point is, Coco wanted Anthony to be alive, despite the evidence. Maybe he was getting close to finding out, and that's why they got him. It's not something we're going to figure out. I'm going with you, Dulio. Seeing that bed all shot up and my friend gone, I'm not thinking about my career right now. Dulio gave him the thumbs-up sign. They ordered meals from a short waitress who never smiled. Both men didn't say anything while they ate. Jones marveled how Dulio consumed two breakfasts in the middle of the afternoon. Jones's mind wandered. His side road theory made him think that Coco's getting close to the Chachiac connection is what got him killed. Just where can we stay in New York and what can we do about any of this? Asked Jones later in the men's room. I can use the place in Brooklyn. Coco used it before, when we were both down there. Dulio zipped up his fly and went over to the sink. We can find out who killed Coco and the other things I've got to do. And if you find out what you want to know, then I'll take it to those bastards. Or a bastard if it's Grogan. The Manhattan Bridge spanned the rippling East River with lower Manhattan skyscrapers tracing the clouds in the background. Dulio, a cell phone pressed to his ear, stood in front of the glassed-in building housing a carousel. He waved over Jones as he ended the call and stuffed the phone in his jeans. Okay, we got the okay to stay with Mrs. Hummer. Jones tilted his head. Mrs. Who? Not who, Hummer. It's a long story. Don't ask. He hit Jones's arm. Keep walking. I get nervous and we just stand here like sitting ducks. They walked toward a tree cluster with the sun shining through the aging Brooklyn Bridge's suspension above. Your jeep is in Ralphie's garage on Crescent Street. How did you arrange that? Julio just stared at Jones. Fletcher is in Bermuda with Bentley. He's been told that you've gone to visit your aunt in Indiana. Your aunt agreed to cover for you. Aunt May gets it. Dad trained her well. They stopped by a barrier fence bordering the river. Jones was mesmerized by the skyscraper clusters in the fading light. Harbor boat horns sounded in the distance. He gripped the rail and was about to speak. What is it, Jonesy? Didn't Anthony know it was dangerous dealing with the chites yet? He was sucked in by big profits. We all told him not to get involved. Just before Anthony disappeared, Coco, Father Gallagher, and Anthony had it out at St. Bart's Parish Hall. Anthony's drugs got to a kid in the parish who was hospitalized. Gallagher raised his voice and threatened Anthony. Anthony was crying. Anthony said he had people who would kill him if he didn't make the deal in New York. They were all pretty upset. I was watching at the door. Coco demanded to know who his supplier was. Then Gallagher lost it and pinned Anthony against the wall. Anthony raised his fist as Gallagher knocked him silly. He used a box. Yeah, Gallagher was the New England champion, said Jones. Anthony agreed to talk to Detective Paul Beckman in the PWPD Narcotics Division. 
Next morning, Coco went over to Anthony's apartment, and Anthony is split. Coco met with Beckman. Cops and the FBI put an APB out on Anthony. The airlines were checked, but no sign of Anthony. The only credit card usage was in a post office in Queens. Coco got the kid in Gallagher's church off the stuff, eventually. Julio checked his watch. Let's go get some food at Mrs. Hummus. Anthony's Story by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 15, Mrs. J.C. Hummer, 106 East Balfour Street, Brooklyn, New York. The house was a narrow, three-story house, one of a slew of identical structures compressed along Balfour Street. Some homes had forward porches, or different colored shingles, or even varied asphalt roofs. Dulio parked the bike between a new black Cadillac inside a row of cars along the street. He and Jones moved up the concrete steps together, and the storm door opened. A tubby, gray-haired woman in a green floral dress stepped forward. She had black-rimmed glasses that seemed to be too small for her snout-like nose. In her fifties, she was not more than five foot tall. Come on in, gentlemen, she said in a whiny voice. Julio, Julio! Julio sneered at her. Mrs. Hummer, this is Jonesy. Jonesy, I've heard a lot about you. Jones scanned the gray colonial wallpaper depicting the American Revolution. You have? Yeah, you're a big deal coach. How do you know that? asked Jones, looking in her eyes. Have we met? No, 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 no. Forget the chit-chat, Jonesy, said Dulio. Over here, in the living room. The house had a lingering food odor, perhaps from the last meal. Mrs. Hummer gave Jones a finger wave and made a Stan Laurel face. Jones rolled his eyes. They moved into a small parlor with oversized gaudy lamps. She pointed toward a burgundy sofa. Mrs. Hummer began to whistle. Hey, you want a stiff drink? I'll have a water, said Jones. Dulio waved her off. We don't want no drink. Okay, okay, said Mrs. Hummer. We don't want a drink, said Jones. Get Jones here water. Yes, sir, said Mrs. Hummer, saluting. I know that woman, said Jones, as Mrs. Hummer tiptoed into the other room. You just met her, Jonesy. The doorbell rang, and Dulio drew his gun. He sidestepped to the window, and Mrs. Hummer seemed unfazed. Some guy with an envelope. She handed the water to Jones and looked through the curtains. That's Jerry Strissick. He's got the delivery. Mrs. Hummer opened the wood door and then the storm door. Hi, Jerry Berry. Hello, Annabella. I got your delivery. Jerry handed the envelope to Mrs. Hummer. Thank you, Jerry Berry. Should I tip? You can buy me a beer at Plastio's. Done deal. This lady never welches, and I can outdrink you. Come on, come on, get that envelope over here, yelled Dulio. Bye, Jerry Berry. She closed the door and handed the envelope to Dulio. I'll be in the kitchen. We're having steak. Good, I could use a steak or two, said Dulio. Or three, <laughs> said Mrs. Hummer, producing a sniffling laugh with her fingers spread sideways over her mouth. She turned to Jones. My daughter travels all over the world. You two would be a perfect match. Hey, 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 shouted Dulio. He pulled up a chair. Mrs. Hummer scampered, and Jones and Dulio sat at the table next to the window. Over here, Jonesy. What is this? 
directions to the Chachi territory. I have word they know what happened to Anthony. What does Chachi mean? asked Jones. Death. Oh, great. We just can't walk in there, Dulio. I know that. Cards on the table. The Chachi gang is mostly in Bedford Stuy. Bedford Stuy? Bedford Stuyvesant, north of Brooklyn. What I'm reading here is an abandoned house, 942 Epping Street, right in the heart of Chachet territory. It's safe for now. Risky. No shit, it's risky. Here, said Mrs. Hummer as she took out a red Brooklyn Cyclones nylon windbreaker with gray trim from the closet and handed it to Jones. Then she held out a red baseball cap. Here, now you don't look like no country bumpkin. No, I don't need put it on, said Dulio. The little Mrs. Hummer helped Jones with the jacket. Fits exactly. Then she slipped on the red cap. So does the cap. You just happen to have my size, Mrs. Hummer? You never know who's going to drop in, said Mrs. Hummer. Jones watched as she retreated into the kitchen. Dulio hit his wrist. Listen, Jonesy, like I say, there's more going on here. Anthony dropped 1.2 mil on that last deal. Fiore's interest was half a million dollars, and the Chachet screwed Fiore out of the money, said Jones. Bingo! And the rest of the money. Why? Dulio gnawed on a breadstick. Fiore found out through his people that Grogan later paid 2.9 for the shipment he stole from Anthony. Grogan dealing drugs? Yeah, and double-crossing. Milo has an office in Queens. Remember this address, Jonesy. 663 Fifth Ave, 6th floor. 663 Fifth Ave, 6th floor, repeated Jones. Who killed Anthony? Okay, Marlow recently found out about Anthony's death and the drugs. Marlow had had it out with Grogan in the Queen's office, a real doozy of an argument. Grogan was all done, so there were witnesses. One secretary, do the cops know this? Don't know. Coco thought Grogan went to a lot of trouble to kill Marlow and set up Hamilton Fletcher. Grogan didn't know that Chachi got the other 1.2 mil. After Marlow's death, Coco realized Dragon Air brought Grogan and that drug shipment back to Flanagan. Coco didn't know about Flanagan before you found out about it. And he didn't put the Anthony angle together until you found the handkerchief. And Fiore wants his money back. Exactly right, said Dulio. I don't want anything to do with getting money from Fiore, said Jones. What money? said Dulio with a cunning smile. Right. Jones leaned forward on his elbows. How does Malvaney enter into all this? Coco was furious when Malvaney started in on him at the club. Malvaney is right in the middle of this somehow. I'm going to locate whoever's running the Chachet and from where they're running it from. How can law enforcement not know? Chachet Runs a tight operation. You make a mistake and you die. Just before dawn, Dulio parked the bike several miles away in a mobile station parking lot, talked with someone inside, and then set the alarm. In the cooler morning air, Jones, in his cyclone's jacket, walked with Dulio three blocks to the main road that led to Epping Street. Jones knew the risk, but didn't seem to care much since Coco had been murdered. He gazed up at dawn's glow at the green and white Epping Street sign. We go across the street, said Dulio. This is going to get rough, Jonesy. Jones nodded. We need information on how Grogan and Mulvaney figure into this. Then we get answers about Coco. 
The tenements were sandwiched together like dilapidated cubicles, some brick, some with vinyl siding, and others with pitted stucco-smeared facades. Occasionally a tiny yard was penned in by wrought-iron spindle fences. The street lights were new and the sidewalks clean except near the tenements with broken windows. Sets of stairs were plopped in place like pontoon bridges into a safe zone behind bolted steel doors. Jones followed Dulio for a few hours. Dulio seemed to be looking for someone. When they were five blocks away, Dulio stopped. A group of short-haired men in their twenties had been shadowing Dulio and Jones down the far side of the street. Jones, go back to 942. You may need help. There's six men there. One of the men, in an undershirt, backtracked around the corner. Dulio motioned with his head, crossed the street. Jones followed Dulio, who seemed unaffected by a group of now eight men in their twenties. Yeah, said a small Asian man with short orange hair, wearing a silky purple shirt. He had dragon tattoos on his forearm. I have business with the chai-chet. The man laughed, as did the others. <laughs> his accented English seemed to bother Dulio. Sure you do. Sure you do. Dulio hoisted the guy into the air with one arm. Listen, jerk. I need a location. Somebody pulled out a knife, but Dulio already had a gun in his right hand. The man retracted the knife. Dulio looked up. Three of the men backed up. Three of the men backed away and were gone. The others waited for something to happen. One 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 oh four, Baban. They ain't gonna take your shit. Who? asked Dulio. Bow. Dulio let him drop to the sidewalk. The other thugs circled, but the little guy waved them off. Dulio backed up with his gun drawn. When they were about a block away, he turned to Jones. Jones's hands shook, but Dulio remained calm. Dulio kept backing up with the gun drawn. If anything happens to me, Jonesy, you head back to Indiana. Boa is an underling to someone who controls this city to the Chachet. Coco knew about Bale. Who controls the Chochet? No name. That's why Coco can never find Anthony. Maybe I should go with you to this 11104, said Jones. Oh, bullshit. Both of us get killed? You stay at the empty house until I get back from meeting with Boa. Well, hopefully neither one of us will be killed. I don't worry about it either way. I'm going to get answers from these bastards. Anthony's Story by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 16, 942 Epping Street, Bedford-Stuyvesant, New York. Dulio had earlier deposited a denim knapsack packed with food from a local convenience store. Jones finished another package of peanut butter crackers and leaned against the cracked plaster wall. Most of 942 Epping Street's windows had weathered plywood sheets over the broken frames. The apartment was strewn with curled yellow newspapers, dented beer cans, and smelled of urine. Outside, Jones heard an occasional car pass in the distance. He shook his head, wondering how he ever got himself into this situation. His eyes ached, and he still lamented over Coco's death. He formed an image of the vet with all the bullet holes across the blue fiberglass. Coco would always defend himself, and Dulio didn't even need a gun in most cases. He was amazed at Dulio's bravado and what appeared to be fearlessness. But as the day wore on, Jones mostly stayed at the window as the sun cut across the street and onto the tenements on the other side. An adjacent brick attachment looked like it had been bombed. Walls were down and bricks fallen onto the dirt and grass. He checked his watch. Dulio had been gone for ten hours now. His mind floated back to Mrs. Hummer's apartment. She did not work, yet she had a new Cadillac, 
and she looked familiar, which made no sense, around the eyes. Darkness gradually settled over the entire area. Even the streetlights were distant. Maybe Dulio wanted the cover of darkness. Just after 8.30, he climbed through the window. The right side of his face was swollen. You all right, Dulio? A few miles up the street, I had four of them. They had two-by-fours. They're in pain now. I could hear them say they were going to kill me. You got away? Yeah. Anything going on here? No, nobody's been around. Dulio dipped his hand into the knapsack and removed a few plastic-wrapped eclairs. Then he slid along the wall next to the window frame and munched. I stirred up a hornet's nest with my questions. Bayo denied that the no-name individual even exists. He's lying. After the fight, he slipped out the back. I followed the fool for eight blocks. Boa spoke the name to one man who pulled up on a motor scooter. Nahat is the no-name. And I know when Nahat has set up shop right now. What's the present address? It's not. It's a boat. A boat called Escorton Bay that shadows Long Island. I don't know how long they've been using this method. Nahat keeps changing his location. Clever. No one ever talks about him or even sees Nahat. They have couriers posing as tourists. They don't even know they're transporting drugs. But Dulio, why would Nahat tell you anything? You don't get it, Jonesy. Fiori wants that half million. They'll kill you. No. They don't even know I'm onto this. My bet is they won't challenge the Fiori organization. Dulio closed his eyes as he spoke and leaned back against the wall. We're leaving Grogan out of this equation, Dulio. We'll get to him later. You have his address at the Marlow Building in Queens. Somehow they crossed paths years ago. 663 Fifth Ave. Right. I'll be back at the mobile station by tomorrow night. Dulio, don't go out alone. Dulio threw the eclair wrappers on the floor. Jonesy, come on. My friend is dead and I want to know why. And I don't want his uncle going down. Coco was right about you being tough and loyal. Now he'd do the same. Damn right he would. Dulio closed his eyes. In a few minutes, he evidenced sporadic grunts and snoring. Jones was angry now. Maybe that's why the bullet-riddled vet kept bobbing into his thoughts. About 15 minutes went by, and Dulio spoke clearly in the dark. One more thing. What's that? Dulio opened his moist, dark eyes. I have a girl. Her name is Melody. Bruno knows her. If I don't get back, uh, tell her I was thinking of her. I will. Jones watched Dulio fall fully asleep, this time with his hand on the forty-five Magnum and more eclair wrappers on his jeans. The stillness was uncanny, yet foreboding. Jones had never been in the service, yet with his buddy dead and the possibility of Uncle Dulio and Jones himself threatened, he had a reckless aggression and a loyalty to protect Uncle Dulio. He wasn't afraid anymore because he had lost the sense of caring about anything except revenge and justice. Before dawn in the distance, sporadic automatic weapons fire mixed with the highway traffic. Dulio opened his eyes. It's them. How do you know? Because they control this area, Jonesy. They're still miles away. Where are the cops? <laughs> Forget it. They won't touch this gang. Dulio set his head against the wall. What about you, Jonesy? You got a girl? No, I did, but not now. Too bad. No, no, it's a good thing, Jones smiled. I have my Aunt May. I have all the people I know in the town and the college. 
Father Gallagher, he said, laughing. Franny at the Colonial House, I like her. Even Hamilton Fletcher. Don't start old home week as your last will and testament. This time the gunfire was a little closer. They're going house to house looking for me, because I told them I knew about Fiore's money. Nahat must know by now. And you're just going in there to this guy. Doing it for Fiore. And for Coco. Understood. My bike at the mobile. I'm paying a guy inside named Rodriguez. Paying him a hundred a day if something gets messed up. Will they follow us back to New Hampshire? They already did in that charger up at Flanagan. Maybe with Coco, too. Let's hope Mulvaney isn't on board with him. Now that I know who Nahat is and where he is, I'm going to have to cut off the head to kill the beast. I'm sure he's well protected. The gunfire was perhaps two or three miles away. Time to go bye-bye, Jonesy. Let's go. Jones looked at his boat tickets. The tickets were official city tickets. Somebody's been paid off. Dulio and Jones sat on a bench on the upper level as the ship moved away from the terminal. Right. Jones checked his watch as the ship bobbed in the currents across the East River. The sun caught the blue smokestack and heightened the wood planking on the concourses. His eyes ached and the coffee and muffins he ate messed up his stomach. Julio laughed when Jones asked if he looked like a tourist in a cyclone's jacket and hat. They got cameras at both ends of this concourse. Jones was in awe of Dulio's fearless attitude. Oh yeah, I see him. What if they recognize you? Let's hope they do recognize me, said Dulio, as if he were merely reading yesterday's baseball scores. What? They know I represent Fiore. Nahat will talk to me. Jones's restless leg bothered Dulio. Calm down, Jonesy. Look like a tourist. Jones nodded and stomped his leg once. He felt the gun under his cyclone's jacket. Again, he was concerned about the end of his own career, and he wondered if he'd stay out of prison. You think Coco knew about Nahat? Coco wanted to know who killed Anthony, and he pushed and pushed. Maybe he was close and he didn't even know it. I get it. Listen, let's stick by the plan here, Jonesy. You go along the rails down the far end of this concourse. I'll be on the first level of the stairs on this side. I'll come back up after I ask about Coco and Anthony and the money. If too much time goes by, then get off at one of the docks, Jonesy. Disappear. Jones nodded. Good luck, Dulio. <laughs> Look, I need a friggin' miracle. For 22 minutes, Jones tracked the shoreline less than a half a mile away. He could easily swim into one of the Long Island coves and eventually return to Hamilton. Football camp would start and no one would even know he came down here. But he couldn't live with himself, not knowing who killed Coco, nor could he throw Dulio to Nahat. Someone clasped their leather glove hand around his left shoulder. He looked at a rock-faced Asian man with a thin mustache. His eyes were like black marbles. He pointed a dark handgun into Jones's ribs. You, come with me. Jones was pushed down another set of stairs at the far end. He passed the lower concourse filled with tourists. The staircase narrowed and darkened, lighted by bulbs down to a lower level. Down here, the engine was louder and the air was dank. He hunched over down a windowless corridor into the belly of the ship and trudged forward. Another guard opened a hatchway and light spewed into the metal hall. 
Dulio, unharmed, sat in an orange chair next to a matching sofa and across from a wide desk. The air was filtered and pleasant. Newscasts played on two large monitors hanging from the far wall. Another monitor had real-time maps with white graphics connecting along the shore of Long Island. Jones figured those lines represented drug routes. Behind the desk was a man with a fat face and a shaved head. He wore a cut-off denim vest. I did not kill your friend, he said in an accented voice. Who did? I have no knowledge of Coco Stefani. We only dealt with his brother and quite successfully. But Anthony is gone. Jones noticed a scar along his neck near the right ear. They didn't kill Anthony either, Jonesy, said Dulio. I, I am a businessman. I send out orders and they are carried out. If murder is committed, I am not aware of it. Nor do I have Mr. Fiore's half million dollars. It's gone. You were paid by Anthony and then Grogan. When Anthony was killed, you kept the money, said Dulio. It doesn't matter now, said Nahat, laughing as he drew his pistol. Five hundred thousand dollars converted to diamonds. You tell me where they are. I have no idea what you're talking about. It's the only reason I saw you at all. Perhaps Anthony Stefani did not live long enough. Dulio stepped forward. If you killed Anthony, I will crush your skull. Now that you have all your answers, said Nahat, you will crush no one's skull, Mr. Stefani. Both guards aimed handguns at Dulio. You double-crossers! Jones's stomach tingled with fear and his heart thumped. You just think that you can send out orders and things happen because you're not responsible, shouted Jones. My friend is dead. <laughs> My heart goes out to you, said Nahat, writing something in the notebook. Get them out of here and dump them out the rear disposal chute. Dulio's voice became low and guttural. I got friends who will kill every one of you subhumans. I don't think so, said Nahant as he went about his work. I can give the order and the Chechet will destroy all the controlled areas of the city if I wish, he said laughing. <laughs> Look at you. You two came down here to avenge the death of inconsequential individuals. Inconsequential, yelled Jones moving toward the desk. The security men swung their guns toward Jones. Liars! growled Dulio. Get rid of them! Jones heard a rumble outside and another man rushed in. Nahat, there are law enforcement boats surrounding the vessel. Nahat's eyes opened wide and he rocketed to his feet. That is impossible! Impossible! Fire all weapons at them and bring these two men to the disposal chute and kill them! As the men scattered and started back up the stairs, gunfire exploded outside. Jones felt a gun barrel in his back, but Dulio swung his elbow like the edge of a powerful machine into the remaining man's ribs, knocking the air out of his lungs. As Nahat reached for his pistol on the desk, Dulio lifted the desk into the air. Nahat fired the weapon. Dulio then pressed the desk and knocked Nahat over, pinning him against the wall. Dulio dove across the desk and sent a blow that contorted the fat man's jar and snapped his head like a child's doll. Nahat's eyes rolled upward and he collapsed in slow motion onto the desk. Jones stood with his mouth open. He's dead. Into the corridor, Jonesy, shouted Dulio, plowing Jones into the narrow metal passageway. He opened a tiny door that led to the ramp. 
As bullets ping on the outside hull, they race downward. More bullets hit the closed hatchway ahead. Where it says trash, Jones pushed the button and the door moved upward as light filled the area. He stayed against the wall as the bullets continued to fly. The sea air also brought in the heightened sound of the gunfight outside. The wake of the ship trailed back toward New York City in the distance. The fight's on the other side of the boat, said Jones. Listen to me, we swim ashore, said Dulio. Meet at 942 Epping. If the hot didn't kill Anthony, Grogan did. You don't know nothing, Jonesy. Just get in the friggin' water. Jones removed the cyclone's jacket and threw the cap off the boat. Both men dove into the brine. Jones began swimming. Shore was maybe 15 minutes away. He awaited bullets spraying the water. The gunfire diminished, though, with each stroke. Dulio's splashing also faded. Jones kept thinking of Coco's vet and then the college as he swam. Strangely, his football teams and the offense he'd be running in the fall kept repeating all the way to the beach sand. Twenty minutes later, out of breath, he lay in the wet sand. The ocean water washed by him. He did not see Dulio as he crawled across the sand and lay face down on the berm. When he finally sat up, several orange flares arced into the sky above the tourist boat. Jones fully sat up, amazed he had escaped. Maybe he should have gone to the authorities or just gone back home. He panned the beach but did not see Dulio. Then he scrambled across the beach grass and toward the cottages ahead. Somehow he would find 942 Epping and Uncle Dulio. Anthony's Story by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 17 942 Epping Street, Bedford-Stuyvesant, New York Although concerned about Dulio, Jones marched back to Brooklyn, near the area controlled by the Chichet. He collapsed in the urine stench room at 942, sometime in the middle of the night. Dulio's knapsack, with food and water, lay on the floor. Jones sucked in some of the water from a plastic bottle, and when he leaned against the wall, it was like he had taken a sleep-inducing drug, and he fell asleep. Sunlight on his face woke him early. His shoulders and his arms ached, and his head throbbed. Hopefully Nahant was dead or in custody. His career at Hamilton was over if the authorities knew he and Dulio were on that ship. He crawled across the floor and pulled the knapsack toward him. Inside were wrapped energy bars, and with his eyes closed, he began gnawing through the plastic. Maybe Dulio was on his way to get his bike. Jones could not be sure. Just as easily, he could have been shot from the ship and drowned. From the outside, maybe down the next street, someone with an accent shouted, The end of the line for you! A muffled gunshot, like a gun with a silencer, popped. But the bullet did not seem directed at Jones. Several additional muted shots sounded. Jones pulled himself up the window frame. Another volley started from the collapsed brick portion of the tenement back toward a stockade fence. Two Asian men fired guns with silences toward the brick pile. Jones heard a voice from behind the pile. Yeah, you won't get me, you bastards! Huddled between the bricks, Coco Stefani, his shoulder bleeding, fired toward the men on the far side of the collapsed building. The adrenaline flowed again. Jones leaped from the window behind the bricks and scrambled over the loose pile. Coco wore a cut-off gray sweatshirt. He pressed Anthony's handkerchief against his shoulder wound. When he saw Jones, 
He fanned his guns and then opened his eyes wide. Jonesy, what the hell are you doing here? A bullet hit the bricks near Jones and he leaped below. I knew damn well you were alive. Several bullets hit the building behind them. Both Jones and Coco ducked. Then Coco's face tightened. There's no way you could figure this out. How did you know I was here? I didn't. Your shoulder. Don't worry about it. It's just a flesh wound. He aimed at the open window in the brick wall ahead. Two bullets pinged the bricks. More Asian men were near a stockade fence behind the building. Jonesy, what are you doing here? His eyes opened wide. Dulio. Dulio's here? Where is he? We were on a boat. It was raided. By who? We were with Nahat. Coco fired at the fence. Who the hell is Nahat? He controls the Chechet. It's taken me five years. And you, Jonesy, you find out about this dude. No, Dulio did. Coco looked over his shoulder. We have to get the hell out of here. All hell broke loose yesterday. These morons don't know who I am, yet they're trying to kill me. We escaped. Nahant said he didn't kill your brother. Who cares what that pig says? He's a lowlife. Not anymore. Dulio... I've never seen anything like it. He lifted this desk into the air and threw it at Nahant. He hit Nahant and broke his neck. Dead. What do you want? Dulio was a 7G Impala. A what? Elite Special Ops. Where's Dulio now? He was swimming towards shore. We were supposed to meet back here. You and Dulio both had this address. Then he looked up at Coco. You faked your own death. Coco tightened his brow. Yeah, so what? Why? I wanted the Chai Chet to think I was dead. So I could come down here. He looked over the brick pile. Where the hell are they? What about Anthony? Asked Jones. They didn't kill Anthony, Jonesy. He was a money source. I just can't prove it was Grogan till I corner the scum. Mr. Fiore put up a chunk of change for Anthony's coke deal. Half a million. Very good, Jonesy. More bullets chipped the bricks. Coco slapped the second pistol in Jones's hand. They have more firepower than we do. Jones looked at the blood leaking through Anthony's handkerchief. Well, they know you're here now. I cornered this guy about a mile back from here. Boa. Coco did a double take. You're good, Jonesy. And you can't believe I'm alive. I told Boa I wanted to make a small deal. Then they get a call from somebody. They leave and the shooting starts. I ran back here. What about Mulvaney? What about him? Three of the Kai Chet men fired rifles at the bricks. Coco fired twice and they ducked behind the rear fence. Somehow we've got to get out of here. If we can hold out until dark. <laughs> you think we're going to survive another seven hours of this crap? What about Dulio? He's coming here. Don't worry about Dulio. He'll take care of himself. Where are the cops with all this gunfire? Oh yeah, cops aren't going near this place till it's over. Plus, half these morons have silences. The Kai Chet began shooting from the street behind Coco and Jones. Damn, maybe there's a way into that house basement, said Jones. Coco squinted. Then what do we do after that, Jonesy? What are you going to do about Grogan? Coco bit his lip. Kill him. Coco, again, how do you know Nahant wasn't lying? Coco spoke as more bullets hit the bricks. You listen to me, Jonesy. Grogan flies Anthony out of Flanagan to a place on Long Island, said Coco as his eyes watered. They drive Anthony to Bedford-Stuy. 
They make a deal. Then they give the stuff to Anthony in suitcases, and he delivers the cash. Grogan and his people show up in a van, and they steal the suitcases. Grogan then pays the Chichette money from Marlowe's company. They all head to Long Island, get back to Flanagan, but Anthony never made it. Coco fired at the fence. I'm sorry. Yeah, me too. I figured Anthony was dead when he didn't come back to Prince William. I just needed to find out what I found out. How did you find out, Coco? Never mind. Just forget it. Somebody told you. Coco thought for a long time before he spoke. I just never figured Grogan until Marlow bought the farm at the old man's party. Lou Marlow found out about the drugs and Anthony, according to Dulio. Grogan needed to kill Marlow. That's right, said Jones. I'm glad you're here, Jonesy. Loyalty is more important than anything in life. Come on, said Jones, keeping his gun aimed at the fence. He held Coco to his feet, but stayed under the brick wall. Coco pointed his gun toward the street. You need to have that wound treated. Just move your ass, will you? I can't believe you're alive. Well, it won't be for long if you don't get the hell out of here. Jones held him under the other shoulder. There's an opening in the bricks to the house. They clawed across the rubble and toward a dark opening within the bricks. Coco turned and fired at least a half a dozen rounds at the fence. Then they ducked inside the cool, dank cellar. More weapons discharged outside. The windows brought dim light into the basement. To the right, wooden stairs extended to the first floor, and a bulkhead faced the side street. Bulkhead, they whispered in unison. Jones pulled the metal catch and slowly let the outside light in as he opened the side door. They scrambled up the stairs and into the summer air. The next tenement blocked the back portion of the fence. Coco pointed toward the street, and they ran at a diagonal to the fence and into the next yard. In a few minutes, they were along a busy highway. Jones turned back to the neighborhood. The police sirens sounded in the distance. We're going to Mrs. Hummer's place. She knows you're here? You know her? Yeah, I know her. They started down the street. Coco, beside him, constantly turned with the gun in his hand as he held the handkerchief with his other hand. Incredible. Wait till I tell the old man this one. Somehow Mrs. Hummer had clothes for Jones. She set the tuna casserole on the kitchen table. Jones was sure he had met her before, but he couldn't place her. Coco's shoulder was now bandaged with gauze and a wrap. Hey, I wish my daughter were here. She's a nurse. Well, that doesn't mean Jack right now, Annabelle, said Coco. So where's the big guy? asked Mrs. Hummer. Coco took a drag from his cigarette and exhaled. Don't worry about it. Can I have a ride on that bike? asked Mrs. Hummer. The hell with the bike. We got bigger problems here. Don't worry. Nobody's going to find you. My mouth's like a steel trap. Yeah, so's your brain. Coco stared at her and then faced Jones as Jones scooped the noodles out of the steaming casserole dish. Mulvaney must know exactly what happened on that boat. How can he get away with being so crooked? I don't know. My side road theory tells me Mulvaney's embedded in the operation out of Flanagan. Whoa! What? Let's stick with the matter at hand, Jonesy. You sound like you're protecting Mulvaney, said Jones. My son is in law enforcement, said Mrs. Hummer. Mrs. Hummer, 
Clam up. Jonesy and I need some privacy. Okay, I can take a hint. Good. Coco faced Jones and exhaled as Mrs. Hummer started up the second floor stairs. She looked down and Coco turned quickly, then she rushed up the stairs, knocking into boxes in the hallway. I've seen her before. Come on, Jonesy, you're always seeing somebody. Listen, the trick here is, like you said, to prove Grogan ordered Marlowe's death. Then the authorities can pressure him about Anthony. Why well, wouldn't count on Herbert Lane intimidating Grogan? Not Lane. The DA down here, Nathan Green. How do you know Green? I asked. Oh. Just back off, Jonesy, said Coco, holding a smoldering cigarette. If the DA doesn't work, if the DA doesn't work, you'll take Grogan out. Coco pursed his lips. All of them were adding pots to the story. It was all consistent. He put out a cigarette. That pilot, Olson, he saw the whole thing. Olson does the books on the shipment because he pilots all the deals. Not just the drugs. All kinds of illegal stuff. Some of it's in their Prince William warehouse and others in Queens. The first thing we got to do is see if Olson is in Queens. I'll pressure that bastard to tell the truth. Then we drop a dime to Green. Jones stood. I don't know what's going on here, but you have a ton of information you're not telling me. Outside, a motorcycle engine revved and then shut off. Coco drew his gun as Mrs. Hummer, back on the first floor, leaped under the table. Coco looked between the curtains. The massive dulio in his gargantuan frame, filling a white t-shirt, burst inside. His leather coat was gone. Uncle Dulio! exclaimed Coco. You bastard, you're alive! Well, thanks, Dulio. Excuse me for living. You should have told me you were going to pull this stunt with a vet. I didn't tell nobody, said Coco. You all right, Jonesy? He's fine. Where have you been, Dulio? I couldn't get through to Epping once the shooting started. He turned to Jones again. Jonesy, you sure you're okay? Yeah, I'm okay. What is this, best buds? Coco called for Mrs. Hummer. Annabelle, get Dulio some of that casserole. Nahat took Fiore's money. Where is it, Dulio? Marlowe's office building is in Queens, said Jones. Unless Grogan double-crossed Nahant. Is that what he said? asked Coco. Why would he tell you to? Mrs. Hummer set a huge casserole dish in front of Dulio, and he immediately attacked it with a serving spoon. He was going to kill us before that shooting started on the boat. Till I see that money, I'm not trusting anything Nahant told you. I'm not stealing Fiore's money. Don't worry, Jonesy, said Coco, pinching his cheeks. We won't tarnish your Mr. Clean image. I'm already in trouble. Why? From what you said, you got off the boat, and you didn't do anything wrong. It's not just the money. I want to know about Anthony. Jones pursed his lips. Then what's the plan? We go to Marlowe's building in Queens and straight to Grogan. Corner him and find out once and for all if he killed Anthony. If he did. Jones, wearing another Brooklyn Cyclones windbreaker and hat, walked ahead of Uncle Dulio into the Venture Building, a cubicle black building with clear windows maybe ten stories high. He was not armed. Dulio opted to take the staircase to the sixth floor, where he'd be ready if needed. Coco sat on the Harley in the basement. Jones didn't trust Grogan or anyone else in Marlowe's organization, nor did he want to get mixed up in retrieving half a million dollars for the premier organized crime syndicate in New England. Luring Grogan out was not a crime. 
He looked up and down the sidewalk and then entered the building through the brass revolving door. The black marquee read Marlowe and Associates, sixth floor, in white letters. Fatigue followed him into the elevator and his heart thumped. The elevator whined all the way to the sixth floor. He would say his name was Doug Weldon. One of his father's aliases went on investigations. And Doug Weldon wanted to import some vases from Shanghai, but had no means to get the vases back into the country. Bill Weldon for Mr. Grogan. A little secretary with large veins in her hands flummoxed when he asked for Grogan. Mr. Grogan is out for the afternoon, sir. I'm an importer. I have faces in Shanghai. I need a shipper to get my items to the States. Redo deal and imports. I can have Mr. Grogan call you when he checks in, Mr. Weldon. I'll call in the morning. The phone buzzed. She quickly picked up the phone. Oh, problem? asked Jones. Apparently, Mr. Grogan is here. I apologize, Mr. Weldon. If you will go to the last office in the end, Mr. Grogan will meet you shortly. That's great, said Jones, realizing now he'd have to confront Grogan. Jones was suspicious as he walked the short distance to the first office. More large buildings shadowed the sunlight in the side windows of the gray-paneled room. He sat on the desk and exhaled. When the door slammed shut, he leaped to his feet. Then he found the door locked and retreated to the window and peered down the sidewalk six floors below. Wonderful. The hall door burst open and two men with thirty-eights aimed directly at Jones moved forward. Grogan, wearing a tailored brown suit, entered the office with a snarky smile on his face. You don't think I recognize you, Jones? What the hell are you doing in New York? Should we kill him, Sean? No, uh, frisk him. As the men kept the guns on Jones, Grogan moved forward. Why the hell are you here, Jones? You know damn well why I'm here. He's clean. You killed Coco's brother. And now Coco's dead. That's what happens when you live on the edge. Shut up. The two men closed in as Jones pointed at Grogan. Lane knows about the garden, how you murdered Lou Marlowe and made Kostecki lose his mind. Let me tell you something, genius. I'll be out of the country before that imbecile Lane ever gets off his fat ass. With Fiore's money, said Jones, immediately regretting blurting out the information. What? he screamed, thrusting his own handgun at Jones's head. I don't know what you're talking about. You and Mulvaney both were hauling thousands out of Flanagan Field. Mulvaney? He turned to his two thugs. I got nothing to do with Mulvaney. Take care of him. Send him to the street. Grogan marched from the room, rattling the door as it shut. All right, Jones, over by the window. If you think I'm just going to jump out that window, suit yourself with or without, he said as both men held up their guns. Behind them, the door slowly opened. Uncle Dulio walked across the carpet. He shoved the first man into the second one, and they both slammed against the wall. Dulio kicked one of them, connecting his shoe into the man's chin, knocking him out. Jones scooped the guns off the floor as Dulio hoisted the man into the air and squeezed like a vice for close to a minute. Then the man dropped to the carpet. Incredible, said Jones. Follow me said Dulio in his gruff voice, taking the guns. Down to the basement to Coco. This is all screwed up. A man in a black suit walked inside the open door, followed by Grogan. Grogan had a perpetual smile on his face now and pointed his gun. Enter the big man, Dulio Stefani. And I heard you say that Coco's alive. 
You heard nothing, said Jones. Bring Big Stefani to the SUV in the basement. He faced Jones. Jones, you're a damn fool. You should have just stuck to doing your job at the college. I don't abandon my friends. Oh, bring out the violins. Kill us now, you weasel, said Dulio. I don't want to look at your ugly puss. You're not going to wrestle and push your way out of this one, Dulio. You killed Anthony. Anthony was a sucker. Dulio took two steps toward Grogan, but Grogan hoisted the gun toward him. He should have checked his competition. Both of Dulio's oversized mitts were clenched. And you teamed up with the FBI, said Jones. Grogan stared at Jones. Why would I do that? Both of you in the elevator. You're going for a little ride, stated Grogan as they all filed out of the office and toward the elevator in the hall. The elevator doors opened and Grogan and the man in the suit surrounded Jones and Dulio inside. They descended toward the basement. When the doors opened, Coco was spread eagle against the SUV with a gun pointed at his head. Ah, Coco Stefani, risen from the dead, said Grogan. Screw you, Grogan, shouted Coco from the SUV. All you had to do, all you, was leave well enough alone. Now you're all dead men. Are we supposed to be scared? asked Coco as Grogan's phone sounded. Grogan cupped the phone to his ear. Mulvaney? Where? We'll go out the other exit. Your partner in crime. Shut up, roared Grogan. Let's go out the Tally Street side. Where are you taking us? You'll know when you get there. The landing strip at Rubidoux Station, Long Island, was configured differently than Flanagan Field. Flanagan Field was in the woods, and Rubidoux on a sandy spit of land half a mile from the beach and probably along Scorton Bay's route. Connected to the land by a curvy wood bridge, the spit extended for a few hundred yards into the ocean. Jones stared out the window. The Blue Dragon aircraft faced east on the asphalt strip, wind blown with sand granules. You're going to kill us all from the plane, said Coco. Just like you killed my brother. Grogan stared ahead and the SUV shook over the bumpy bridge. You're a coward, Grogan. Like your brother. Coco leaped toward the front seat. Grogan put the pistol against Coco's forehead. The guy in the gray suit thrust his gun into Coco's ribs. You'll get yours, you bastard, screamed Coco. Not from any of you. The SUV came to a stop and the sand pummeled the side of the vehicle. Grogan ordered everyone outside. Jones held his cap in the warm air as sand hit his face. They were all marched up a small fold-down staircase to the rear of the tiny plane. Jones figured these flights were always involved in light and small cargo. Up front, a dirty, blonde-haired man in a white baseball cap sat at the controls. How you doing there, Butch? yelled Jones. Butch turned but quickly spun around. Nice little milk run you have going here. Shut up, Jones. Hey, Butch, you think they're going to let you live, doofus? asked Coco, laughing. Both of you, on the bench and shut up. Oh, what, you'll kill us? asked Coco, again laughing in his face. Get this plane in the air, Butch, ordered Grogan. The man in the suit prepared to secure the stairway hatch as the engine started. Jones, looking out the window as Grogan went up front, saw black SUVs and men in FBI blue vests surrounding the craft. Katrina Kimball in a blue FBI vest with yellow letters brandished an automatic weapon. Now her stay in the hospital made sense. The man in the suit pulled on the side chains of the hatchway. 
Out of my way, Jones. People outside pulled the hatchway open. As Grogan turned in the cockpit, several FBI men with automatic weapons stormed into the plane. Jones watched Mulvaney ascend the stairs. To his right, Grogan slid a huge serrated knife around Jones's neck. Jones felt the cold blade against his skin. Get back, chick, or I'll slit his neck. Throw the gun down the stairs. Mulvaney complied and then faced Grogan. You're all done, Sean. We know what you've been doing out of Flanagan. We know you killed Anthony Stefani and shoved his body out the plane in the Long Island Sound. It's all documented. You and your FBI people like to make things up. We have you on tape, shouted Katrina. We heard everything you said. It's on audio under a court order from D.A. Green, as well as the bugging inside the Cyclone's hat and windbreaker. That's how you got to the boat, said Jones. Glad I could be your guinea pig, chick. Members of the Chai Chet are under arrest at Cyclone Stadium. You're all done, Grogan. Grogan's eyes opened wide and he pushed Jones aside. With the knife raised in the air, he flailed toward Mulvaney. The weaponless Mulvaney raised his hands. Three quick shots, muffled by the cap, hit Grogan directly in the back. He slid forward and impacted the wall and then bounced back on the worn carpet. Gunpowder filled the air. Coco, his face tightened, stared at Grogan's body. Olsen entered the back with his hands in the air. The FBI ops team rushed back inside. As they cuffed Olsen, Coco handed the tiny gun handle forward to Mulvaney. You saved my life, Coco, said Mulvaney. No, chick. I executed my brother's killer. Anthony's Story by R.P. Fitton Chapter 18 Fletcher Estate, Fletcher Hill, Hamilton, New Hampshire Coco's silver-gray Lamborghini, briefly owned by Stewie Wingate, was parked in the third bay of the Fletcher garage. Jones panned the huge crowd in front of the Fletcher Estate and then looked back to the drive to Rick Morrow in his bright red jersey. Morrow's legs were like powerful pistons, yet he carried twice maybe more of Jones's weight. In the months since returning from New York, inundated with written and sworn testimony, Jones spent his hours training for the race with Morrow. He was not sure if Kevin Phillips had trained, but he surely would win against the huge Morrow. The course, Morrow told him, was 20 miles beginning at the Fletcher Estate, twisted around Hamilton and ended up at Hanson's Marina. The ride would probably take less than an hour to complete. Hey, Matthias! yelled Arnie Dewars from the back of his truck. Jones wore his Brooklyn Cyclones windbreaker and hat, minus the bugging equipment. A large crowd, including Jones's football team, had gathered around the Fletcher driveway. I got my money on Morrow. Thanks for the support, Arnie, called Jones as he straddled his bike and stretched his legs. Hey, coach, said Bucky, lifting a purple water bottle. Take this with you. You'll fly like the wind. Jones sniffed the bottle, which smelled like rancid milk. What the hell is this? Nature's best. I got it from Brownie Plimpton down the surf shop. You drink it, Bucky. Huh, you'll regret it. You can go 50 miles an hour with this baby. Coco stepped between them and grabbed the bottle. Don't be handed Jonesy this slop rodent. He sniffed open the bottle, his face tightened, and he poured the yellow liquid onto the bushes. Get lost, Driscoll. Jonesy needs to concentrate. Hey, I paid 20 bucks for that power drink from Brownie Plimpton. You a rook, now beat it. Okay, okay, said Bucky as he slipped and then stumbled across the grass. 
the hapless Slim from the landfill, approached Jones and slowly extended his hand. Good luck. Well, that's nice of you, Slim. Thanks. Don't let the big guy hold. Hold what? The pace car. Right. Thanks, Slim. Katrina Kimball, wearing slacks and a sports jersey, walked up the drive past Coco and up to Jones. Coco sneered and then shook his head. I'm sorry, Mr. Jones. Jones straddled the bike. He studied her blonde hair and freckled face. Her blue eyes were neutral, just like her. All you had to do is tell the truth, Cat. I couldn't. I was on the case against the Chichet. I don't like being used. You're quite an actress. Like I told Mulvaney, I don't appreciate being a guinea pig all wired up so you could find the hunt. If it wasn't for George Strickland, I'd be filing a complaint right now. If it's any consolation, you helped shut down a major drug line coming into New York City. We're looking for the converted money. You mean Fiore's money? Well, don't look at me. I don't have any idea. You know nothing about the diamonds? You just can't stop doing your job, can you? If you hear anything, please call our office, said Katrina. And that's it. Coco's brother is dead and he's not coming back. So why don't you go off and do your job, Miss Kimball? Maybe you'll get a promotion. I'm sorry you feel that way. Yeah, I'm sure you are. She tightened her face and then headed down the drive and out of sight around the corner. Coco with Dulio gave him a wink and a nod from the side of the drive. Lark Larson, watching Jones, bumped into Coco as he stumbled up the drive. Watch where you're going, Larson, said Coco, or I'll tape your mouth shut permanently this time. I have no recollection of anything. That's the smartest thing you've ever said, replied Coco. I was just going to give Matthias the old Hamilton College pep talk before the race. Yeah, like that ever worked. What was that, Rocco? Get lost. Talk to Jonesy after the race. Heidi ho Hamilton Fletcher, in tennis shorts and a polo jersey, approached Jones from the garage. Matthias, I never talked to you about Mrs. Fletcher. Sir, we just don't know if Lou Mala ordered it or he covered his tracks. Well, Lou always covered his tracks. You got my ass out of the sling on this one, and I won't forget it. He shook Jones's hand, and Jones got off the bike and stretched his legs. Franny McShane waited until everyone was gone. She walked over and handed Jones a clear water bottle from the Colonial House, as per his request. Thank you, Franny. Don't drink unless you have to. You're only going 20 miles, Coach. Yes, Coach McShane, he said, saluting. Thias, was that Kimball? asked Franny. Yeah, a woman who did her job but neglected to tell the truth. Not a good combo. Franny, just keep it under your hat what I told you about New York. She held his wrist briefly. Matthias, the whole thing is so unbelievable and scary. I'm staying as far away from it as I can. Thank you. Jones smiled. Thanks for the water. Gotta support the home team, said Franny. You always do, Franny. Are you ready? I am. She looked over at Morrow, his wide girth pushing against his red and white tank top. Something about Morrow. He's got something up his sleeve. What makes you say that, Franny? He's not saying much. Good observation. Jones stretched his legs and ankles again. We're only riding 20 miles, Franny. What's he going to do, put a motor on the wheels? She helped Jones with his cyclone's windbreaker and folded it over her forearm. It must have been fun watching the cyclones. I hear it's like old-time baseball. Mulvaney was still questioning us during the game. We'll have to all go down there someday. He gave her the cyclone's hat and then snapped the black vinyl helmet on his head. Let's see what Mr. Morrow is up to.
Well, maybe he'll try and force you off the road, said Franny. She put his hat on her red crop. Jones waved at Father Gallagher, wearing his CYO jogging outfit in the crowd. Gallagher moved his clenched fist back and forth. Do you have the milkshake, Franny? It's on ice, but if you don't win, I'll drink it. Deal. Good luck, coach, she said, pointing her index fingers at him. Thanks for the support. Just win. I will, said Jones as he shuffled his bike over to Kevin Phillips. Kevin, are you ready for old Rick? Phillips yawned. Oh, I had a late night last night, Matthias. Some clown was firing a rifle through donut holes in the Big Mama's parking lot on 4th Street. I didn't know Bucky was out last night. I wish it was, Bucky. We didn't get this guy into custody until 3.30. Athletes always perform better with no sleep. Why do you think Babe Ruth hit all those home runs? Because he was Babe Ruth. Oh, Rick Morrow pulled up beside him. Is this as exciting as being an investigator, coach? He asked. That remains to be seen, Rick. Course is pretty easy. Famous last words. Bucky had a megaphone in his hand. May I have your attention, please? May I have your attention, please? You have our attention, Driscoll. Now tone it down, said Hamilton Fletcher. He slipped a wad of $100 bills to Coco. Add this to the pot, Coco. Whoa. Will the contestants please line up by the rhododendron? The rhododendron. Ah, line up by the bushes. Bucky's security car was backed right into the bushes, crushing the branches and flowers. What happened to my prize rhododendrons? Squawked Hamilton Fletcher. Driscoll! Driscoll! Uh oh, said Bucky as he retreated quickly down the driveway. Riders, take your marks! As Hamilton Fletcher continued his bombast, Jones, Phillips, and Morrow set their bikes in place between the rhododendrons. John Millington, the local historian, held up the starter's pistol. Now I want you boys to fight and fight fair. What is this, the heavyweight championship? Bucky spoke through the megaphone. Stick to the road and give each other the right away. Remember... Shut up, Driscoll, said Coco, ripping the megaphone out of his hands. Why don't you go play in traffic? Yeah, that would be risky. Yeah, right up your alley. All three men balanced their bikes and clipped their shoes in place. Millington nodded his head and fired the pistol. They rolled forward. Jones mostly held the brakes until they reached Route 32. Wendell Harris, cruiser blocking the road diagonally, waved them north with two lighted markers. Jones stayed to the right, keeping pace with Rick Morrow, as Phillips remained in back as they sped north of town. They passed a road sign for the county psychiatric hospital. Jones veered right with Morrow toward the Quantico River. Jones smiled as he thought how nice Franny was to bring him the milkshake. Central Street was bumpy through the swamp. The sun rays shot through the branches. Jones figured the Woodbine Bridge and the youth camp was not too far ahead. He checked his odometer. They had already gone five miles. Phillips lingered in back as Jones kept pace with Morrow. Through the forest, the wooden bridge arched over the Pequonicut just before the river widened at the mouth into Hamilton Bay. All three riders banked at Shore Road North and crossed the tight boards over the river. To his left, the bay brightened, and to his right, First Paris's youth camp's bunkhouse came into view. Over the hill ahead, the trees thinned and the grasslands extended to the dunes along the bay. At the 11-mile mark, the crest in the road wound through the dunes. In the haze, Sal's restaurant sat across from where Shore Road moved 90 degrees right toward 
north Prince William. Hanson's marina was still 14 miles away. The sweat flew off his face as he kept pace with Morrow. He wondered, flying down the far side of the road, how Coco had survived the gruesome death of his brother from the airplane. He finally concluded that Coco had no choice but to survive. The whole New York scenario was surreal. He was glad Franny had listened to him as they walked around the common three weeks ago. Mulvaney assured Jones that he had multiple court orders allowing the Cyclone's jacket to be wired for surveillance. How did Mrs. Hummer happen to orchestrate the windbreaker and hat routine? Mulvaney never informed Jones. Strickland told him that burying the matter would give Jones an in not only with the FBI, but other law enforcement agencies. Dozens of gang members were going to jail for a long time. And what of the diamonds? Nahant never mentioned Fiore's money had been converted. Uncle Dulio and Coco had no answers, so they said. Somebody had the diamonds. He wondered if they'd come after him. Like Coco said about incoming bullets, if you're not hit, don't worry about it. Jones smiled and peddled. He still had not adjusted to Coco being alive. Nor could he have envisioned that Lou Marlowe's crash landing onto the Fletcher estate would have led to the scenario in New York. Morrow was now side by side with Jones. Jones pedaled faster and kept up with Morrow as the dunes road straightened and then twisted and turned. Then something that Uncle Dulio told him oozed upward in his brain. How Coco had used Mrs. Fletcher's Mercedes with the New York plates down in the city. The car was exposed to maybe a month's period of time in the heart of gang territory. Maybe Nahat or even Grogan had hidden those diamonds in Mrs. Fletcher's car. That would be the reason why someone would push that nice lady down a gorge in the middle of Rochester, New York. Someone would have needed to get to the lower road and then to the Mercedes. If the diamonds were indeed inside, Jones, as the sand patted against his sunglasses, figured that someone was Don Gostecki. Grogan was using the Mercedes to securely bring the diamonds back to the Prince William area, yet Gostecki was killed at the airport. And what about the elusive Agent Mulvaney? Jones was shown a deposition at the Cyclones baseball game, sworn under oath. Mulvaney had arrived at Nuncio's and never observed Grogan toying with Lou Marlowe's suit. It only made sense, and even though Jones was not a Mulvaney fan, the FBI man was telling the truth. Yet the coincidence of Mulvaney being in Nuncio's when Lou Marlowe's soup was poisoned continued to eat away at Jones, and what could he do about it? He slowed slightly as Morrow seemed to be having no trouble navigating the winding area. Morrow soon moved ahead. At the 19-mile mark, Morrow was clearly ahead of Jones. Jones had banked too many times back in the dunes. He closed the gap with only six more miles to Hanson's Marina. Morrow's thick legs pumped rapidly, and he did not look as if he were slowing. Kevin Phillips was at least 30 yards behind Jones. Strickland's cruiser blocked Shore Road into town. Strickland spun his fingers at Jones as Morrow passed by him first. Jones realized he was now in danger of losing the race. His lungs moved rapidly and he felt lightheaded. At the 22-mile mark, Jones closed in on Morrow. Perhaps the larger man was growing tired. The crowd had gathered on both sides of the Hanson Marina's drawbridge. Jones could almost touch Morrow's racing pants, but it was not enough. 
Morrow rumbled over the bridge and across the finish line, less than two seconds ahead of Jones. Jones' sides ached and he breathed heavily. Morrow had won the race. Jones stopped and straddled the bike. Then he stretched his hamstrings in back. Morrow was doing the same. When he caught his breath, Jones walked over to Morrow and gave him a high five. You still got it, Rick? Franny moved over slowly with the cooler. She removed the milkshake and held it out. Sorry, Franny, I lost. Drink it. You're talking two seconds, coach. Jones inhaled and then took the shake. As he sipped through the straw, Hamilton Fletcher leaped out of one of the Fletcher SUVs. Even Arnie Dewis looked stunned down the hill at Captain Kendall's house above the marina. The vanilla milkshake tasted cool and sweet. Can't believe I lost to that guy. Then he took in some more of the milkshake. I thought I'd win by a half a mile. You'll figure it out, coach, she said, handing a high-energy bar to Jones. Thanks, Franny. My pleasure. Hey, platypus, you lost. I won't argue with you, Bucky. Phillips, having spent the last minute with his hands on his knees, moved over to Jones. Jones shook his head. How did we lose that race, Kevin? Matthias, I don't know. Jones sat in Coco's office with his feet up on the side table. The club wouldn't open for another four hours. Katrina tried to apologize in her own way. Ah, good for her. She's a rat in my book. I'm sick of people just doing their job, Jonesy. Coco stepped back inside. He removed a hammer from his desk and pounded a nail on the wall behind the desk. Then he lifted a silver frame in place. Anthony's caked, blood-faded handkerchief was stretched across a 5 by 7 frame so that in black letters, Anthony's initials were prominent. Yeah, it's in its rightful place. Can't believe I lost that race. Coco sat on the edge of his desk in Jones' turn. Then he faced his friend. Let me tell you about life, Jonesy. What about life? asked Jones. I think I learned more about life this summer than any time before. Coco lit a cigarette. He shook the match and put it in the ashtray. We all get suckered now and then, Jonesy. Even you? Yeah, even me. You allowed yourself to lose that race. And I know what you're going to say. You rolled like hell. Exactly. You rolled like Rick Morrow wanted you to ride. And how's that? Did you really know the course, Jonesy? Yeah, I knew it. Rick explained it out to both me and Kevin Phillips. Oh, sure, he explained it to you. But you let him set the pace because you didn't know exactly where the hell you were going. I never looked at it that way. Slim was right. Well, I'm not saying it wouldn't have been a close race, but Jonesy, you should have broke away from the beginning. You would have pushed the big guy, plus you would have gotten ahead of Morrow. You only needed two seconds. You lost money, Coco. I let you down. <laughs> the hell you did. Gained a lot more than that. I now know I can trust you, Jonesy, and you ain't afraid to put your life on the line for me. You proved that again in New York. Plus, Mr. Fiore's all set. You got the diamonds? <laughs> I'm not saying. Let's just say I had a long talk with the rodent at Big Mama's. I stuffed him full of donuts and then talked to him for about two hours. I got my answers. I've been thinking about this for weeks. Bucky figured out where the diamonds were? No. The rodent just had the information. You had to extract it out of him. And if you're smart, Jonesy, you won't think about it no more. 
Jones nodded. For his own good, he vowed to drop the matter. How's your mother taking Anthony's death? She's working her way through it. Coco typed something into the computer keyboard and sent the music into the club's sound system. Come on, Jonesy, Rita needs some cheering up. She likes you, and she's got plenty of food. Sure. They walked into the empty club. It's a sad song. Berlin wrote it in the 20s. Will Dulio be there? <laughs> Where there's food, there's Dulio. And Earl is back. Just back from the airport. The airport? Jones stopped and squinted. Did he? Coco put his hand on Jones's shoulder as they moved through the club. That's the beauty of life, Jonesy. Sometimes you just don't have to know. As Coco said, he didn't save Mulvaney's life. He executed Grogan. In the end, Jones and Phillips lose the bike race to Rick Morrow, who knew the course perfectly. Jones and Coco end up as close of friends as the story ends. Thanks for listening to Anthony's story. Next time, the Jones story begins at a racetrack and leads to the handyman's secret, which just happens to be the name of the book. I'm Robert P. Fitton, heading out to Frothingham Racetrack, Prince William, New Hampshire. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittonbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.